Reading from Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But he heard it. He said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this summer we have been continuing with uh, uh, exploring this idea of what it would be like to be a part of an urban monastery, a worshiping, praying community in the heart of the city. And they seek the peace of the city by offering a school for the Lord's service and extending hospitality to guests. And we're talking about the second part this summer. In August, we're going to spend a little time just beginning to explore the first part there. And uh, I've been giving you little examples from history, and tonight I, I want to give you one of my favorite names from the medieval area, the Augustinian Canons. The uh, medieval churches had the coolest names for things. So what was an Augustinian Canon? Uh, it wasn't a gun. It was uh, when St. Augustine became a bishop. He said, priest, this isn't a good idea for you all to live by yourself. Let's all live together in community. Let's follow the prayer hours and, and uh, they began to, to kind of live that way. They call it the way of the apostles or the way of the community. And then as time went on, they began to start hospitals in the different cities where they lived. And that became known as a movement called the Hospitallers. So yet again, here's this idea of these Christians living in community, serving their city, which is something that we're trying to do. So the summer, we're looking at different texts on hospitality and just asking, what, uh, what does this look like for us? And this is a beloved text. If you have been around the, the church for, for any time at all, you've probably heard it taught on. And it begins with kind of a familiar scene. Jesus now is up in Galilee in the north, uh, where he's from. This is a familiar area. And he walks by a tax booth, uh, something that we don't have, you know, in our situation today. But this was an occupied country. This was uh, a colony of Rome. And the way that Rome ran her colonies was by taking uh, people from the occupied country, flipping them and getting them to work for the Roman government. Um, I remember once shortly after the uh, uh, the wall fell in the early 90s. I was in Romania, and I, uh, we were on a mission trip, and I was preaching at a large Romanian Baptist church in Tulcea, Romania. And uh, in those days, they would put like four or five preachers up. I guess communism just dulled you to the point where you could sit under speeches forever and ever. And I was like the fifth preacher. And, and the guy before me, it was a real lively house. And then the guy before me got up and the whole house just shut down and got still. 
And he finished, and then I, I did my thing, and later I said, what was that? And they said, oh, he betrayed us. He worked for Ceausescu. He worked for the Securitate. And they hated him. That would be how people would have thought about Matthew. Uh, Matthew was a turncoat. Matthew worked for the Romans. And, and what made it even worse was uh, you could extort anything out of the taxes that you wanted and pocket it. So, so you would be living at a higher level than your friends as you oppressed the people that were once part of your country. So this is not a popular man. He's a very probably isolated, lonely man. But, you know, I had this thought, too. It's easy to read this story, and Matthew's uh, the bad guy, and, uh, you know, the Pharisees are the bad guys. You don't really know everything that's going on, right? Because who knows what drove Matthew to flip to the other side, to work for the occupying force? You don't know. Life is complicated. If there's anything I know over time, people do things for lots of different reasons. So maybe he's not as bad as we, we make him out to be. This summer... I, I've been trying to brush up on my, my leadership skills. So I've been reading a bunch of leadership books, business leadership books. And some of that has been helpful. Some of it hasn't, but a lot of it's been helpful. And, and one of the things that leadership books talk a lot about is talent. Uh, Jim Collins wrote this great book called Good to Great about great companies. And he says that great companies get the right people on the bus. That's his metaphor for leadership. That they get the right people on the bus and they sit in the right seats on the bus. In other words, if you're going to have a great company, you've got to have great people who are all in the right places. And that theme comes up a lot in the literature. And then I I read one by Jack Welch, the great business leader. And he goes so far as to develop this idea of churning the organization. And so every year you rank everybody and you cut the bottom 20%. Uh, And it's a way to make sure you have the right talent and the right people so that you can uh, uh, do what you're supposed to do. And I don't know what goes on in you when, when, when you read or hear something about that, but sometimes I, 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 you know, I wonder, you know, do I have the talent? I know this is supposed to inspire you when you read these things, but I'm thinking, jeez, I'm glad my board doesn't churn me. <laughs> I, I might get churned this year. You know, I, I don't... I, this is something I've, I've faced all my life is, and I don't know if any of you have ever felt this way, feeling like God gave me some of the gifts to lead you, but that I'm lacking some too. And when I look into the future and I look at where I think God wants us to go and where I think he wants us to move, sometimes I wonder, God, I don't know if I have what it takes to be that kind of, kind of leader. And then finally today, I, my, my goal was to read these books all summer, and finally about 3 o'clock I stopped. I said, I'm going to take a break from business leadership books for a while because <laughs> it was getting kind of, kind of oppressive. Um, now, I share that with you because 
Jesus is recruiting for his key leadership team in this story. He is trying to get the right people on the bus. And he picks the absolute worst guy you could possibly pick. (laughs) And these guys were notorious for having bad morals. It was a bad marketing choice. Uh, It was bad branding. Uh, It was just, just a horrible choice. The consultants would have just had a had been furious at Jesus for picking Matthew uh, to be on his leadership team. Everybody knew that when the Messiah came, he would pick the Pharisees. They'd be on the leadership team. Jesus doesn't pick one of them. He picks people that really aren't qualified to do the job. And I just love that about our Lord. Would you ever feel that you're not qualified to do the job? I feel that all the time. And I think the Lord does this on purpose to model for us the upside-down value system of the kingdom of God is that God builds his kingdom with the least qualified people. And that's what makes, makes him so powerful. You know, last night I was having a conversation with two good friends, Brad Brinson and Rick Dunn, Rick's pastor out at Fellowship, and Brad's out at Two Rivers. and They are just doing such a great job with their churches, and they just have so many gifts. And I was asking them some questions about a few things, and, you know, how to do this, how do you handle that. And, you know, it was, uh, for a while, I, I just had this moment where I felt, God, why did you give them all the gifts? It's just not fair. Why did I get half of them? <laughs> and this text, I think, is, is so powerful because it says God uses us in our brokenness. That's the kind of people that he extends hospitality to. And I thank God for that. Well, Matthew evidently chooses to follow him. We don't know everything that happens here. That We're not really given the, the time. It probably didn't all happen as immediately as it looks like in the story. And over time, Matthew has fallen in love with this Jesus. And remember, the, the last person in the world a rabbi would be with would be someone like a tax collector. And Jesus and Matthew have fallen in love. And so Matthew starts to tell his friends, fellow outcasts, you know, it wasn't easy to be this person in this culture. And they all want to meet him. And so he throws this party. And they all come over to his house. And Jesus is right in the middle of all of it with tax collectors and sinners. And and that was shorthand at that time for essentially people judged by the religious community. Uh, Everybody on the outside. And, And we've got to keep this in mind. Under the old covenant, there was a way of thinking about holiness that we would call separation. The way that you would be holy was by staying away from the bad people. Uh, Let let me just real quickly show you where that comes from. We see it all, actually, all through the Bible. Psalm 1 starts off this wonderful psalm, but you kind of get a feel for how the Pharisees would have thought about it in uh, Psalm 1. Very first line, 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You get the idea there? Who is the holy person? He's not around the sinners. He's not around the scoffers. He's in the synagogue with the word of God, with the godly people. That's how you pursue holiness. And it's, it's really all through the Old Testament. Just a, a couple other verses. Uh, Ezra 6.21. The sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations of the land to join them ate the Passover. Ezra 9.1, the holy race has intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Ezra 10, now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land. Nehemiah 13, when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners. Leviticus 20, God says you're to possess their land. I'll give it to you to possess it. I'm the Lord your God. I've separated you from all the peoples. So this doctrine of of separation as holiness was a a major part of how you you thought about yourself as a follower of of Yahweh in the Old Covenant. I am holy because I do not associate with people of other faiths. That's why I know I'm holy. And if you go to Jerusalem today and you walk into the Jewish quarter, um, You'll, that's just sort of the way it is there, too. There, there's a sense of you're not supposed to be there. I, I did it once, and uh, it was a very, very odd feeling of uh, defilement. I'm, defi- I'm defiling the neighborhood. And it, it comes from this idea that the way you're holy is by staying away from bad people. And so Jesus comes into this context and starts to eat with these people. He's He's redefining how we relate to people outside of the church. You remember, the Old Covenant is different than the New Covenant. This this is a revolution. This is a radical shift of how we're to relate to people who are outside of the faith. Instead of fleeing them, avoiding them, cutting ourselves off from them, we're supposed to party with them, eat with them. Break bread with them. Love them. Now, Jesus clearly hasn't given up on holiness. Matthew 5, 6, 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. He's sketching out all the ethics of the kingdom of God. He cares deeply about holiness. But but now you see something nobody's ever seen before. He spends time both with his disciples and with people who need the physician. How you doing on that? I, I know this is not true for everybody, but I, I find that when you become a follower of Christ after a while, your friends become more and more Christian. Not in every case, but for many of us, after a while, the people that you eat with, the people that you extend hospitality to are other Christians. And as time goes on, we have less and less time with people who aren't part of the 
part of the faith. So hospitality is creating space, creating a table where people who aren't followers of Christ feel welcome, safe, loved, and accepted. Hannah Hauser sent me a quote this week, and I thought, this is a good way to think about uh, some of this. When it comes to how we do community, to the building of it, the maintaining of it, the creating of it, whatever, I'm not really into the whole tactics or steps or strategic plans. Just be a person. We should say it out loud. You are not alone, and I'm here. I think community is healthiest when we are fully human, alive in Christ, and alive to one another. So I think what we're seeing here in Jesus is is just the creation of community with people who are not yet in relationship with God, and he's just with them. And I think we need to have that same rhythm in our own lives, a balance between intimate table fellowship with people of faith, intimate table of fellowship with friends who are not of faith. Another quote from Henry Nouwen's great book on hospitality. Hospitality, therefore, means primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. The paradox of hospitality is that it wants to create emptiness, not a fearful emptiness, but a friendly emptiness where strangers can enter and discover themselves as created free, free to sing their own songs, speak their own languages, dance their own dances, free also to leave and follow their own vocations. So what I'm, what I'm suggesting tonight is that as we try to be hospitable, there's, there's kind of two parts to it. One part is, is when we welcome uh, other brothers and sisters in the family of Christ and encourage them in their faith. But another part is creating that safe place where people outside of the faith can come, be safe, be embraced, be warm, be loved, regardless of wherever they are. Now, two last things I want to point out, and then we'll go to the table. He refers to being the great physician. Those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I think this is such a powerful picture of what a Christian community could be. That we, we're all sick. We're all sick with something. And we come into a space where the physician heals us. It's just such a beautiful picture of what the church can be. And I'd ask you tonight, you know, where are you sick? You know, Chris did such a great job sharing that story. You look at her, you read about her. She's got a book coming out by a prominent New York Writers helping her with it. Everything looks perfect, perfect, perfect. She's so humble, though, to share the other part of the story. We all have another part of the story, don't we? I 
I just want us to be a community where we can bring our sickness in and experience the healing of Christ. Let's pray.